0: Good morning. I'm glad that uh, you guys are here today. There are some some weeks that I think are maybe easier for prep where your mind is just kind of with it and and going well. Uh, This was not one of those weeks. Um, Just a very heavy-hearted week kind of across the board. And so um, I'm just going to pray that the Lord would guide this time and um, would make it useful and that you and me would walk away blessed in his presence instead of um, focusing on man, focusing on God. So God, we come right now just to uh, lay everything before you. Your word tells us just very clearly that you care for us so we can release everything and everyone to you. I don't have to impress anybody. I'm not earning anything. And for everyone here sitting in the pew, neither are they. I pray that you would just give us a sense of your nearness as we read your word. um, That your spirit would convict us, would draw us into close, intimate friendship with you. And that, Lord, you would do the work that you have begun. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Um, So you can turn there. I think it's page 811 in your pew Bible. While you're turning there... Imagine a young boy growing up in a Jewish community during the first century. Now, if not daily, at least five times a week, you would be at the synagogue. The synagogue was the hub for Jewish life, and with no government programs to administer welfare, uh, the synagogue took care of it. In fact, so great was the participation in the giving to the needy that there were certain Jewish laws that would limit the giving to not more than 20% of one's income. Hardly a problem we struggle with here in America, right? You grew up giving to the needy, and you knew who gave a lot. Each trip to this synagogue would yield yet another witnessing of some verbose and exquisite prayer, Seemingly uttered to just catch the attention of people nearby. But the sound of it was lovely. And the words would just tickle your ear. And you would think to yourself, man, this person is close to God. And then you would turn your attention from prayer and you would notice a handful of men with ash smeared across their face. And and, and clothes so itchy, no one would volunteer to put them on. And you knew immediately what was happening. These men were fasting. They were super holy. And immediately you were impressed. A friend invites you to join him on a little trip near a village in Capernaum. There's some rabbi that's going to be teaching there. And so out of curiosity, you say, sure, I'll go. And he's not long into his message and you hear these words. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret, or sees in secret, rather, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret shall reward you. And you're thinking to yourself as this young Jewish boy listening to this rebel rabbi speaking on this hillside. This has been my experience. Everything he's saying is like the opposite side of a coin. What in the world do I make of this? You see, this is a warning passage. It starts out with, beware. We're going to learn this morning that motives matter in our spiritual practices. In fact, my hope is that in examining these verses and listening to the words of Jesus, that we're going to see that the approval of God alone rightly motivates our spiritual practices. But first, we need to understand what this passage does not say. Otherwise, we'll be headed down the wrong path. This passage does not say, don't do good works. Otherwise, Jesus probably would have contradicted himself two sentences earlier. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, more than two sentences, but if you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, he's talking about this idea of letting your works be seen by others. So the passage does not say don't do good works. It also doesn't say hide your good works. I would just say that the litmus test is the direction of glory. Who's getting the glory? What glory are you aiming to grab Or what glory are you aiming to reflect? And that's what's happening. One theologian says it this way. I think it's wonderful concerning this passage in Matthew 5.16. Show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. It's a good way to reference your good works that are being done. So that begs the question, and I think this really is the place that we all must start we're looking today at, at giving and praying and fasting, but we all must begin here with this real simple question, why? Why am I giving? Why am I praying? Why am I fasting? You see, these are not things that Jesus thinks are good ideas and, you know, maybe you should incorporate them because it's like a good, you know, you should eat your veggies or something along these lines. He's, he, these are statements. When? When you pray, when you give, when you fast. These are expectations that Jesus has of his disciples. And so he dives right in to being aware of what happens when you give. That when you draw attention to yourself, it reveals your purpose and exposes your motive. There are four main Words that kind of come out when you're looking at giving. I want to focus on those just briefly as we as we roll right through this. This is going to be hard. There's a lot of verses so we're just trying to do a flyover. The first thing he talks about is beware of practicing your righteousness. We often very quickly think of righteousness in terms of like judicial righteousness, like legal righteousness, my standing before God, I'm righteous. And this is true. This is accurate. But What he's saying here would be helpful to look at in terms of just right relationships. My relationship to the needy or to someone less fortunate than me ought not to be me drawing attention to to helping them out because what am I really doing there? The focus is me. And so what he's saying is like, just be careful that your right relationships are not put on display. Righteousness second thing he talks about is sounding no trumpet. Now this, honestly, I think is one of the most bizarre phrases because when have you ever seen someone just bust out the bugle, drop some money in the offering plate, this is how it's going to roll? No, Jesus is a genius. He is a genius because the, the thing used for collection in the synagogue was a ram's horn. What else was a ram's horn used for? It was a bugle. It was, it was this trumpet that would call to battle. So ancient Israel, this was the trumpet of ancient Israel. He's saying, you know, the, the sound that would call people to battle, that would draw attention, that would pull people in, is the very thing that's collecting the change for the needy. What's that mean? It means, have you ever taken a metal object and then, like, tossed a coin at it? What sort of a noise would it make? Come, 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 come. What about two coins? What about a whole purse full just dumped in? What's he saying? He's saying, "Look, you're drawing attention even by the way that you're just dropping it in the ram's horn. You're saying, "Look at me!" Look at me. So he's saying, "Don't sound a trumpet. We're over here going, "Man, there's music happening in the streets." As people are. No, Jesus is like total genius, play on words. It's masterful. So right relationships, the trumpet and then Jesus uses the term hypocrite. Now this is interesting because up until this point in, in ancient Greek literature, the term hypocrite is not derogatory. When I say the term hypocrite, how many of you guys immediately think, Ew. Like, like almost all of us immediately we're like, yeah, it's a hypocrite. But actually, the term was a theater term. It was someone who would literally take their self and put on a mask and be something in performance for the accolades of other people and then take off the mask and set it over here. They were hyperbolic. They were acting in such a way to grab attention, making an overstatement. And he's saying, Look, it's not about theater. The practice of your faith is not a theater for other people to go, Oh my, look at that. It's not a theater. And so Jesus, 17 times throughout the Gospels, he uses this term hypocrite. So he, he takes a term that's of neutral connotation to everybody who's hearing it, and he immediately flips it. And every time he uses it, it's with a reference to the practice, the showy practice of faith. That's dangerous. And here's the one that I want to key in on. Father. This is revolutionary for these first century Jews who are hearing this. They're like, Father. That's why they got so upset when Jesus called God his Father. That's just unapproachable. That's too close. That's too intimate. That's too... And so Jesus, on purpose, 17 times throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through uses the phrase Father. He's just driving at this intimate relationship that you and I can have With him. And the person listening would have been like, "Uh, that's kind of crazy. And Jesus is like, okay. But I'm still inviting you in. I want you to be a part of what the Father has to offer. So it's just funny when we think about this idea of left hand versus right hand and giving to the needy. I can remember years ago, um, experiencing someone's generosity. Now, if you think about the most generous people you know, they're also like the people who hate the spotlight. And so, I can remember this one experience I had where I was like gushing with thankfulness every time I would bump into this person. Like, oh, you have no ideas! Thanks so much! Thanks so much! And um, I was I was corrected. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but like, <laughs> I said thanks, and it was like I don't know the third or fourth time in a in a couple of weeks. <laughs> And they just looked at me, put their hand on my shoulder and said, I'd rather you just said thanks and let's move on. (laughs) And I'm like, all right. That's, in my view, that's the type of person who doesn't know what their left and right hand are doing. Is it actually possible for you to not know what your left hand is doing, your right hand? The idea is simply this. Don't draw attention to one or the other. Dallas Willard says it really well When he says, the kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. So true. So true. And then Jesus contrasts that with this idea of the reward that the Pharisees are seeking. You see, the Pharisees ravenously sought the approval of man ravenously. In fact, in John 5, verse 44, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? You see, our faith will immediately be challenged when my fixation is on the person next to me. When all I can think about is what this person thinks about what I'm doing, how I'm living, what I'm wearing, what I'm driving, what I'm... Guess what? It's just... You're circling the drain. Belief is more difficult when the practice of your faith is a show. It just is. And then he moves on to praying. And I love this, that God is neither ignorant, needing our instruction, nor hesitant, needing our persuasion. When you start to think about how God interacts with us, I don't need to rouse him to action. I just don't. He knows what I need. And so the, the Lord's Prayer is really broken down into to two categories. The first three would be God's glory and the second three would be our need. Um, and again, this is not going to be in-depth. So I'll just roll through just real brief descriptions of what each, each of these mean Uh, and then we'll see what God has for us toward the end when we look at the truth to life. The first thing he says is, Hallowed be your name. And essentially he's just saying this, I want your name as a model for our prayer. I want your name, God, to be held in high regard. I I want it to be treated as holy. Can I just say... In this cultural moment that we live in, it is hard to exaggerate the lack of respect for the name of God. Isn't it? It's hard. I was watching a movie just the other night. And this person in the movie was trying to catch a train ride. And there were no trains that ran on Sunday. And she couldn't believe it. And she says to the other character, oh my God, I can't believe it. And I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly the reason why. (laughs) what you just expressed in vain is the reason why there's no reverence for his name to the degree that she was upset that her schedule was bumped and it's a movie but it's a picture of culture then he says in verse 10 your kingdom come and then when i think of god's kingdom i just think of his rule Ephesians 3.10 says it this way, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is as much boots on the ground, physical day in, day out God's rule as it is a spiritual battle that you're not seeing with your eyes. And he's saying, your kingdom the way that things run there, the way that things perfectly uninterrupted, totally under your sovereign care are there, I want it here like that. That's what I want. And the question, is, could you say the same? Or is it Doug's rule and reign? Is it Doug's kingdom? I want my kids to do X, Y, and Z. is it? Is it? And then he moves on in verse 10 to talk about God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I would just say this about God's will. God's desire. That it's folly to resist it. But it's wisdom to discern it, to desire it, and then to do it. When I start thinking about God's will, the thing that catches my attention is that often I want my own thing. And I get so upset when I don't get it, it just drives me crazy. And here in this prayer, I'm reminded, no, it's actually God's will. Things work out much better. Uh, flourishing of humanity just comes alive when I'm more concerned about his rule and his will and the reverence of his name. And then he moves on to start addressing the needs That people are having when they pray. He talks about daily bread. Now this is just the essentials. Food, shelter, things of this nature. What I find helpful when I think of daily bread is just this it creates, by by saying this out loud, by asking this of him out loud, by recognizing that even the the eggs that I ate for breakfast this morning are because of his providence, even understanding that helps me to say, uh, it grows my conscious awareness of dependence upon him. Do you really believe that he is all you have in need? That's what that's getting at. And then in verses 12, And 14 and 15, he talks about forgiveness. Us forgiving other people. Us being forgiven by him. Forgiveness simply means a release from the obligation to pay. God, release me from the obligation to pay for my sin. Romans 4 is clear. I need to pay for my sin. I ought to pay for my sin. I am on the hook for my sin. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Romans 5 says that he paid for my sin. And so you, you move into that place of forgiveness. And I would just say this, that forgiveness is as dis- indispensable for the soul as food is necessary for the body. Show me the person who is racked in unforgiveness, and I'll show you the person who is dominated by bitterness and moral and spiritual failure. It's just what happens. When you are someone who cannot release to God what is his and cannot allow him to forgive and heal and redeem, you will be dominated by bitterness and moral and spiritual failure. You just will. That's why he says then right after that, you know, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations actually say deliver us from the evil one with reference to Satan. The idea here is that the deliverance from temptation, God promises never to tempt us. We're just recognizing and and agreeing with that in this prayer. And you're like, well, what's the connection between temptation and forgiveness? Maybe this is it. I think the connection is that forgiveness is needed for guilt that we've already incurred. We've already done something and we need forgiven. That's why we're asking for it. But when you start to think about um, deliverance from evil, I'm looking at protection and prevention from guilt that I don't yet have. I don't want guilt over mistreating my fellow brother or sister in Christ. And so I'm asking God to deliver me from a poor interaction It's really, and maybe the most basic way to say it, it's really just about holiness. It's really about just this right action before God. And saying, I'm set apart for your your use and purpose, God. That's what I'm set apart for. I'm not living for myself. So then he moves on to fasting. We've looked at giving and prayer, and then he moves on to fasting. And and I would just say this about fasting. Fasting. The inclusion of our body in our discipleship to Jesus reinforces a holistic love for him. If you love Jesus with only your mind and not with your body, and you don't exercise, and you don't choose to eat properly, and you don't care for yourself physically, you're saying, Lord, the physical body that you gifted me with is actually, it's of lesser value than my mind. That is to say that God's creation... Is not valuable. And so when I'm talking about fasting, I'm not talking about, hey, just avoid food so that you can fit into those genes. I'm talking about avoiding food so you can fit into the identity that God gives you. That's what I'm saying. You see, strictly speaking, fasting is just the avoidance of food for the purpose of seeking and attention to God. It can and it does have profound spiritual impact. And you're like, well, what do you mean? I, I would just say, you can see examples. I'll list a few here. In Nehemiah chapter nine, when um, when the when the wall is rebuilt and the people are learning of what the law had or the wall was rebuilt and they're learning what the law had said that they had missed, they went into fasting and prayer. You can see it in Jonah chapter 3 where sins are presented before Nineveh and the whole town is called into this place of fasting and repentance. You can see it in Daniel 9. You can see it in Acts chapter 9. Right after Saul is converted to Paul, he spends three days in fasting. And if I could just say it this way, uh, I think, I remember hearing John Piper say it once and it, it struck me. That fasting says, this much I want, God, you and nothing else. It's a unified desire that just says, God, only you. So he talks about hypocrites and, and how they're play-acting in this spiritual theater for people. And that's their reward. Someone's going to pat them on the back and say, wow, great job fasting. Awesome. Okay, that's your reward. If that's all you were after, that's all you wanted, if that can satisfy you... You got it. And then he moves on to anointing your head. Why? Because when you feel like you're at the weakest and most destitute, that's when you're at your most strong. So act like it. Carry yourself in a way that doesn't draw attention to what you're avoiding. So I think uh, if you want further evidence of the benefit Fasting. You can look at Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Not necessarily recommending that for everybody here, but the idea stands that Jesus, when he was deprived of food, was at a point where he was most clear in his mind. If anything, it helps us to understand that our appetites can be controlled for a purpose. And so move that into the spiritual realm. What appetite do you have that you know, left unchecked, will just own you? What is it? Is it like, I'm just going to run to pornography, or I'm going to run to social media, or I'm going to run to that next purchase, or I'm going to make sure that my kids are in every possible extracurricular activity so that I'm going to run myself ragged? What is it? What is that thing that's just eating you, owning you? And he's saying, look, if if I can fast from that, what I'm doing is I'm teaching myself, my physical body, that I can control and suppress that appetite on purpose because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So giving, praying, fasting, the Father sees what's done in secret and he wants to reward. So the question from a truth to life perspective is how do we obey what Jesus is teaching us here? Let me just provide a few suggestions as we close. Let's return to our story at the beginning that Jewish boy. And just pretend with me that this young man is transported to 2022. What is he observing as he's watching the practice of the faith in our current cultural climate? What's he observing? Here's a few suggestions of what he might be observing. I think one thing he might be observing is is a celebrity Christian posting on Instagram how much money was given to Hurricane Relief. I think he might be observing the shameless self-promotion of someone who wants to gain notoriety for their skill, and their skill is marketable in the Christian world. I think he sees... Teens and adults alike glued to a device, holding it up, snapping a picture of themselves, and then saying, Will somebody please tap the like button? Please, I'm dying for it. And this Jewish boy is thinking, This is no different than first century. This is no different. They're throwing coins into the ram's horn to make a noise. These people are posting on Instagram how much they gave. No different. You see, there is a tyranny in living for the approval of others it's madness, it's frenzied. You'll never get there. We are built, though, we are hardwired with a desire to be noticed, aren't we? Just last week, Pierce sent me a text saying he soldered for the first time. He's building a little um, motorized vehicle out of uh, a water bottle. He burnt the heck out of his finger, but he soldered for the first time, right? And then I got home and Oliver wanted to show me how he was wheeling and dealing in fantasy football. Like He's got these trades, he's working out with some other guys in our life group and it's working pretty well, and he just wanted to show me that. Or sometimes, Jada Will would just want to show me her artwork that she makes for someone's card or a song that she's been working on. Now, would it not be madness for me to believe that my kids are doing that because they're like, Dad, please love me. Wouldn't it be madness? Wouldn't it be stupid for me to say as a father, they have to do those things in order for me to go, I love you. No, they are hardwired, just like every one of us, to say, look at me, Dad. Look at this. Look what I have for you. Not because they want me to like, somehow approve of them as much as, as that is true. They're just doing it because of the relationship. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, we have scientific data that proves The role that fathers in particular play, especially in the lives of their children and how they develop and how they get faith, how they grow up. Things like behavior problems and obesity and education are just a few of the challenges that kids who don't have an an active father present experience. 18.4 million children, one in four, grow up in the U.S. without a present father. You're saying, what in the world are you talking about? Why why are you bringing this up? 17 times Jesus talks about the Father in the Sermon on the Mount. 17 times. And so I have just some suggestions for how we obey. Number one, fathers. Draw your kids up on your knee. Ask about their day. Make them show you what they did. Ask them what they're learning. Memorize verses with them. More than anything, you're asking, well, Dad, this is like Parenting 101, Doug. Uh-huh. And Parenting 101 makes it easier for your kid, when they hear the word father in Scripture, to resonate instead of reject. Right? We need a father. Fathers be fathers. Second, give me faith without fanfare. This, this is something that I think we, we too often want to draw the attention to. So the suggestion is just this. Find someone who is less resourced than you. Someone who might be struggling financially. Someone who is experiencing difficulty. Who needs tangible help. Okay, And just give it to them. And then, don't text your friend. Don't post it on Instagram. Don't snap somebody. Just read Psalm 73 that whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. You are mine forever. It is good to be near God. And then just rest in the smile of the Father. Like Pierce telling me about his soldering, or Oliver about fantasy football, or Jada about a song rest in the Father's smile. That's it. And the last suggestion is just this fast. Fast. Try something small. Maybe choose to miss your lunch meal for the purpose of prayer. Again, this is not to fit into a pair of jeans, but to fill out the identity that God has given you. Like, well, I, you know, maybe I've got some medical issues and, and physical fasting is just too challenging. Okay. Um, Take a month off social media. It's a cancer anyway. And you can enjoy what God has for you there. You can meet him there. Fathers, demonstrate faith and fast are just a few of the suggestions. So let me close this in prayer. And we'll have uh, lunch in the all-purpose room. And for anybody who would like to stay after for prayer, um, I'll hang around for a bit as well. So Father, we thank you that you are who you say you are. That um, you are merciful to us. Thank you for your care and concern of us. Pray now as we take this teaching into the coming week that you see what is done in secret And your reward is great. Help us to not live for the approval of man, but for yours. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.